Thanks to my daughter for the cutest intro ever, and thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. Uh, which, if you're new here, uh, is a show created to inspire anglers to protect the planet. And I'm your host, Rick Crawford. So, if you've been paying attention to recent headlines, you know that we're experiencing record heat both on land and in our rivers and oceans. For example, the week of the 4th of July was the hottest week ever recorded. And in Florida, record water temps are causing coral bleaching. That's why I'm excited to share this interview with Dr. Aaron Adams, who is the Director of Science and Conservation with Bonefish Tarpon Trust. And we talk about everything from how climate change is impacting tarpon, bonefish, permit, and redfish, how climate change is exacerbating the effects of El Nino, and tips on how to be a more responsible angler and getting involved with our fisheries management. The Sustainable Angler is available anywhere you listen to podcasts and also airing on Saturdays at 2 p.m. on Charleston's only nonprofit independent community radio station, Ohm Radio 96.3 FM. I hope you enjoy, and if you like what you're hearing, uh, be great if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Sustainable Angler Podcast is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy dedicated to measuring and improving your company's sustainability performance, all while boosting profits. To learn more, visit www.emergerstrategies.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and listening to the Sustainable Angler podcast today. I have uh, Dr. Aaron Adams uh, from Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And rather than me try and fumble through his his credentials, I'll let uh, Aaron in, in, in introduce himself and 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 we'll uh, we'll dive into the interview. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, thanks, Rick, for having me on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm Aaron Adams. I'm the Director of Science and Conservation for Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Um, I've been doing fish research in the Caribbean, well, Western Hemisphere, say, for the past 30 years or so. Um, all of it focused on conservation applications. Um, and so my background it matches well with Bonefish Tarpon Trust mission, which is to you understand enough about our species, their habitats, um, so that we can um, work with efficient community, resource managers, other researchers to fill knowledge gaps um, and address conservation needs. Um, so really big ones, of course, are uh, habitat and water quality, right? If the fish don't have healthy habitats and water quality, then uh, it's, you know, management of say catch and harvest, and it, it doesn't really matter, right? They need good ecosystems. Um, and climate change is a big part of that, uh, for sure. There's a lot of interactions. Uh, in general, you know, places that have healthy habitats and good water quality are much more resilient um, to uh, things like climate change. You're much more likely to have um, systems that can adapt to some extent. Uh, but when you have weakened systems, um, 
due to poor habitat or loss of habitat or bad water quality, that's when you start to see climate change, which is already a big problem, exacerbated even more. Well, what is the, so currently I've, I'm relatively new to the, I guess, to the tarpon game, you could say. And um, over the last couple of years have really just gotten probably unhealthily obsessed with them. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll say that uh, I was fishing recently. I'll say the state, but I will not give the location, but in an undisclosed location in North Carolina, I went tarpon fishing and they were abundant, um, which was surprising to me. Um, I knew through BTT, I did not know this um, until y'all had the research to brought, brought sort of the, the science to it of saying, hey, these fish are, are going north. And I guess I had always, you know, I grew up in Savannah. I live in Charleston. And I'd always heard that, you know, there's some tarpon around and you might be able to find them. But I, I, I was shocked by the numbers and I didn't know if, and it might not, but I didn't know if climate change might, may have anything to, to do with that. Um, I think it does as far as abundance. So if you look at historical records, um, tarpon have always migrated farther north than a lot of people might realize. Uh, Chesapeake Bay, mouth of the Chesapeake Bay area, for example. Um, there's uh, accounts from back in the 50s that I'm aware of of people catching tarpon. Um, and maybe starting in the 60s, people actually targeting tarpon uh, up there. Um, you know, dirty waters, so not much sight fishing. Um, not catching a ton of fish, uh, but yeah, with bait, um, people were figuring that out. Um, that's become more so in recent years. Um, I found some old photographs many years ago of um, uh, people, a couple people with uh, tarpon they had speared off the coast of Portugal. Hmm. Um, you know, so if you think about the Gulf Stream, right, the one reason that um, Western Europe doesn't freeze. Um, like the eastern side uh, is because the warm waters of the Gulf Stream. Um, you know, south coast of England, you can find places that have palm trees, for example. Um, so yeah, I mean, tarpon have the ability to do that, um, but I don't think it was as common before. Yeah. Um, just in my time and talking to others, I think that the season that tarpon, the duration of the season that tarpon spend uh, north, say North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, um, is longer than it used to be. Um, historically, uh, the fishery up there was mostly in the late summer, early fall, August, September, um, especially when the uh, um, southward migration of all the bait fish, menhaden, and mullet, and the tarpon would follow that. Um, and some of those, you know, stories of those migrations were are legend. Right, the the amount of fish uh, along the beaches and whatnot. Yeah. Um, since then, you know, many decades ago, uh, the timing of tarpon arriving in places like Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina is earlier than it used to be. So, you're talking about growing up, you know, on the uh, South Carolina coast. Um, yeah, you were right. They caught some. Uh, some people knew about it. Uh, mostly, it was late summer. Uh, right. But now, people are expecting to see fish in early June. You know, June first. Yep. Um, and you've also seen. I, mean, I have a lot of experience in Southwest Florida um, over the past twenty some years. If say twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, 
you really didn't see an abundance of tarpon until uh, late May, um, uh, mid to late May. Uh, now um, you can find tarpon in early April. Wow. Right. So those kind of more northern, more northern than the Keys uh, seasons are are happening earlier. And I think the migrations north are happening earlier. Um, and then overall migrations seem to be holding the same spatial pattern. But we're also getting, um, every year now, we're getting a report or two of an angler off the New Jersey coast um, getting tarpon or even spear fishermen. Uh, getting tarpon from some of the artificial reefs up there. So, are people um, spear fishing tarpon? Yeah, yeah. Somebody sent me a, a Instagram photo the other day on that. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah. So the next step for us, you know, given the climate change influence on tarpon movements and the the data that we continue to gather, um, we'll soon be putting out some education stuff, but also a call to the states all on the eastern seaboard to enact uh, basically Florida's uh, tarpon regulations, which is catch and release only, can't take them out of the water, and that type of thing. Which, um, which through BTT, they did in North Carolina, I believe. I believe that's yeah. catch and release now only. Correct. Um, and we actually had uh, a couple pictures of people dragging tarpon up on the beach there. And they may have eventually released them, but the data are very clear that if you take a tarpon more than 40 inches long out of the water, you're you're um greatly greatly increasing the chances it's going to die um, i mean so, that's yeah. a that's a hundred so uh, right it's it's about a hundred million year old fish like these fish have survived since the dinosaurs yep. and yep. someone to to i guess they're just uneducated uh, about what can happen to them maybe and hopefully this podcast will shed some light on that, but you know the the proper handling of of these fish is 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 critical. Um, yeah, and that handling, um, keeping them in the water, keeping fight time short, um, breaking the fish off if you know shark shows up, um, those become even more important um, as the water gets you know warm during the summer. Because um, yep. although tarpon are a tropical and subtropical fish, you know they all all fish have their maximum minimum temperatures they can handle. And as the water temperatures get warmer uh, during the summer, like especially this summer, um, then yeah, tarpon are you know even more prone to the exhaustion during the fight, and then pulling them out of the water just adds adds to that. Yeah. All right, so I want to I want to get to to water temperature in in, in a minute because that's like it's crazy high right now. We'll talk about that in a second. But we're, we we talked about bone or uh, excuse me, tarpon. What are what are some of the impacts of Maybe it impacts them all, but of of bonefish and, and permit as well. Um, for basically flat species, how 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 is climate change, I guess, negatively impacting those those flat species? Um, well, we can use bonefish as one example. The water temperature can definitely get too hot for them on the flats. Um, so, for example, uh, we don't tag if we're doing a tagging study. We don't tag bonefish during the summer. Um, cause it's just too, too hot for, you know, to, to surround them with a net and then handle them for the tagging, all that type of stuff. So we limit our tagging basically from October, um, till April okay. because of water temperature issues. Um, yeah, water temperature on the flats, uh, can get too hot for bonefish. Um, and so they'll just kind of move into deeper water and hold in deeper water. Um, especially if you have, you know, say, um, 
a low tide during the you know middle of the day, the water that's on the flats on a sunny day is just going to get superheated. Yeah. Um, and so you'll find bonefish kind of just riding with uh, the incoming water, you know, deeper water coming in, which would be a bit cooler. Uh, but there are times now um, when you might expect to see bonefish on a rising tide way up in the backcountry that in you know, July and August, um, you're not going to see them because it's just too hot. Um, and th those types of days where it does get too hot are more frequent now than they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, bonefish can definitely be affected by it. Um, permit uh, can as well, but of the three species, they seem to be most tolerant of warmer temperatures. Um, uh, so that not as big of a problem. Uh, we have not looked at the effective temperature on, on, on permit catch and release. But um, under what we'll call normal circumstances, uh, catch and release of permit, their survival is extremely high. Okay. Um, um, we don't see much physiological effect on them, and we also don't see a whole lot of predation by sharks after they're released if you're on the flats. Okay. Um, tarpon, um, similar to bonefish, uh, can definitely get too warm for them. So when, for example, we were doing our, our acoustic tagging studies of tarpon, um, we don't tag. We didn't tag during the summers because um, the water just got too warm for them. And you know, when we're doing that tagging, it requires a, a good bit of handling. We keep them yeah. in the water, but still we have to handle them a lot. And if it was warm uh, and that stress, it was just too much for them. Um, so if, you, if you're fishing for them during the heat of summer, like now, July, August, when it's super hot, and say in the Florida Keys, uh, morning's probably better because it's cooler. Um, shorter fight times, um, or even, you know, a lot of people are using fly fishing anyway, or using, um, uh, mosquito hooks, which are pretty light wire. So they can hook the fish, get some jumps, and then, uh, they can straighten the hook. Okay. Um, and so that's better for the fish. They get the fun part of, of, you know, anglers get the fun part of the, the experience. The, the highly addictive part of, of, of yeah. watching a, uh, a tarpon break the surface. It's pretty pretty incredible yeah a silver dinosaur yeah flying through the air pretty <laughs> crazy. that's pretty awesome um well speaking of you know uh awesome and, and wanting to you know protect species that you love um so I, I i'm in charleston is there any evidence of uh the btt knows of or research i've done on on redfish um, and some maybe some of these impacts. I don't know if it, it's it's it, they seem pretty. You know, you can catch redfish from Texas up to Virginia ish. Um, they seem pretty resilient to heat, just based on where they live. But I don't know. I, I don't know if climate impacts. Um, them. Yeah, even redfish. Um, from my experience in Florida, it can get warm enough during summers um, that even redfish can have trouble. Oh well. Um, uh, yeah, part of it's the heat, um, you know, and of course they're cold-blooded, so it affects their metabolism. Um, but also, warm water um, holds less oxygen in general. Yeah, um, and so that also becomes a challenge. Um, so, like in summer, uh, for redfish, I'm typically fishing early in the day, or you know, kind of around if you get a dusk, low tide for tailors. Yeah, um, things have cooled off a good bit, um, and even then, you know, a little bit you know heavier. A class tip it and um, getting them in quickly and getting them out quickly as well. Yeah. Um, that also means you know less time for photos. 
which a lot of people don't like to hear in this age of age of Instagram. <laughs> right. or in, the, the grip and grin. Like call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I understand the desire for pictures, but um, if we're killing the fish that you know we're out there chasing, or in the case of guides, depending on it's for livelihood. Yeah, um, we've got to keep that stuff in mind. And summer is definitely more stressful for pretty much all of them. Um, so yeah, it's you know again, it, water doesn't get as hot, say up in Virginia, where you can find them in the grass beds up there. Um, but in in Florida, especially this year, uh, yeah, it could get too warm for them in the summer. Interesting. Well, I'm gonna not necessarily shift gears, but I want I'm gonna read some headlines from this month of of articles that I've come across because. Aaron, I ran into you at ICAST and we kind of had a, a little bit of a, a, a brief discussion about this. Um, but just all, I was like, God, you know, I mean, and ICAST uh, was, you know, mid, mid July, basically, for anyone listening to this. So we're in July, it's 2023, and the headlines are reading something like this. Uh, Record temperatures along the Florida coast threaten severe coral bleaching. Global ocean roiled by marine heat waves with more on the way. Last week was the hottest ever recorded. Here's why we keep smashing records. And when when you and I spoke, you had mentioned it's we're in an El Nino, right? And it's climate change, which is kind of a perfect storm for this this warm weather but rather than me try and butcher that I'll, I'll let the I'll, I'll let the scientists elaborate on that but but is is that true I mean I guess is that the what's happening yeah I mean it's un- unprecedented you know global uh, temperatures for sure um El Nino and La Nina and then other oceanic oscillations um you know are natural phenomena but that those phenomena are the, the differences between um, the extremes of those phenomena are exacerbated by climate change, um, right? So the the system overall, the global uh, system of we'll call it checks and balances, um, which have just kind of inherently been keeping you know the Earth livable for us. Um, climate change is is affecting that, making it more variable, less predictable um and uh prone to more extremes okay. uh, so for example um you know for the la nina australia typically is wetter than it normally is but the last la nina was so strong uh you may have been watching the news over the past few years um, australia had just epic flooding yep now that el nino has set in it's usually drier there but talking to colleagues over there they're already seeing um close to unprecedented um, drought. Their meteorological service has classified this, this El Nino that's starting now um, as potentially the worst on record. Um, you know, they've got a lot of um, brush that grew from all the rains from La Nina that they're afraid is drying out, just like we're seeing in California now, right? So you get those, the pendulum swings um, um, somewhat unpredictably, but also farther, more extreme. So, yeah, El Nino is exacerbating uh, what we're seeing with temperatures and some of our weather. Um, but it's it's being made more extreme by climate change. 
Now, here's another example for you. Typically, an El Nino year means fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic. Okay. And that's because the you know upper level wind shear just blows the tops off the storms and they can't really uh, form, or if they do form, they can't last very long. Um, all NOAA, University of Colorado, Colorado um, and um, skipping on the third entity have all predicted now more than average number of hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin. There's never been that prediction before. In El Nino year, there's never been at or above average number of hurricanes. But they basically, what they're saying is that the sea surface temperatures are so high throughout the Atlantic, and even the temperatures at depth in places like the Caribbean are so warm um, that they, they expect the old rules to not be as applicable. Wow. Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty massive, right? Yeah. That's a prediction. Um, but the fact that they're all the data that they have, they're making those predictions is, is, is pretty telling, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was reading somewhere um, about this, but the, I mean, I guess for, for everyone's general knowledge, the ocean absorbs like 90% of, or I don't know what the percentage is. It's a high percentage of the heat, right? That that otherwise we would be feeling on land because of climate change, because we're burning fossil fuels. It's staying trapped in our atmosphere, which are greenhouse gases, and it's warming our planet. Well, the ocean absorbs most of that heat. And so now we're getting it. It almost seems like it's like a a pot on the stove that's getting warmer and warmer every year, and then you have this El Nino that kicks it into into high, and it's almost like it's it's almost ready to come to a boil. I mean, it's just crazy everything that I'm hearing with with water temperature. Yeah, so the ocean was absorbing a lot of that extra heat, um, but it has it ha it has a capacity. Right, it can't absorb it forever. Uh, one thing that people don't typically understand is that in the uh, world of what we'll call the natural world, ecology, for example, um, or systems like this, is um, people kind of expect these like long-term trends. But what typically happens is systems will um, be able to absorb things like you know temperature, or if it's a fishery, they'll be able to absorb um, a certain amount of fishing. Everything looks fine. But then all of a sudden you kind of hit what you'll hear people talk about a tipping point yeah. or a threshold, right? Where just the bottom drops out and all of a sudden things change quickly. Um, so that that perception of kind of a long-term gradual change and et cetera, et cetera, is a misperception. Uh -huh. So in the scientific world, um, you know, that's kind of a, that's, you know, that's just known. That's just, you know, the world that we deal in, but trying to translate that into outside of the scientific world um, to people who aren't scientists, you know, it's obviously been a challenge. Yep. Um, so yeah, every, everything that's happening has been predicted. And some of it has been predicted with incredible precision. Um, I think some people, scientists included, are um, maybe surprised by um, it happening sooner than they had predicted. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't really predict thresholds, right? You can't really predict what's going to be that final uh, straw that breaks the camel's back type of thing. Right. Um, 
so yeah, it's yeah, we're in that point. And um the big question is, you know, let's say you know, typically El Nino lasts for a few years. I mean, let's say in a in a different scenario, it just ends next year. Um will will our overall system, you know, rebound and kind of get back to lower temperatures? I mean, nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody it's, knows. It's kind of it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, it's new normal, right? Yeah. 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 Um well, I mean, it's it's sobering, right? To to hear this, but it I need like I don't I don't think people are grasping the sense of urgency um of of this is uh immediate action needs needs to be taken on on all fronts. Um anything and everything. I think it's all hands on deck at this point. I mean Yeah, I mean 100%. So there's a lot of different levels. Um you know, on the personal level, we can use some of the trout fisheries out, out west as an example of water, you know, guides and anglers, in addition to the states, you know, keep track of water temperature. And if it gets too warm, you know, some people just stop fishing certain areas. Yeah. Or if they fish, they're only fish, you know, early in the morning, that type of thing, um, which sucks for the guides because uh, that's their livelihood. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, that type of thing at the personal level. And the same thing can happen. You know, saying in Florida, you know, the Florida Keys is getting temperatures, water temperature, 96 degrees in some places. Um, what, well, just, how does that compare to like an, an average or, or? Oh, it's it's well above average. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's way too much for, for fish. So, you know, a, a, a responsible angler, you know, will be checking the water temperature and not fishing. So there's some of that self-regulation that can happen. Um, so that's kind of our new normal is you're going to need to be checking water yeah. temperatures where you're fishing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, for sure. I think also, um, you know, yeah, so self-regulation is a big one. Um, but, you know, getting to the bigger picture, um, in a democracy like ours, um, and we kind of get that we get the leaders that we deserve because we vote them into office. Right. And so not enough uh, people, citizens, voters in the United States have made uh, climate change a big enough issue um, to make things happen. Um, and we're seeing the repercussions of that now. And those repercussions are going to continue to ramp up. Um, so like when I give talks at, at say, fishing clubs and and uh, and get questions about oh, what can we do. Um, very frequently, my response is look in the mirror. Right, um, right. We're the ones. Uh, and until the politicians think they're going to get uh, defeated in an election because of something like this, they're not going to act on it. Yeah. But I can't. I would. I would guess that uh, every person. Every fisherman listening to your, every angler listening to your podcast will have been affected by climate change. If they're, you know, say trout fishing out west, uh, last year, there were some areas that were closed down. Yeah. Part of the year, right? For the water's too warm. Um, if they live in places like North and South Carolina, um, they're seeing more tarpa than they used to, which, right. you know, can be a positive, but it's also a result of climate change. Right. If they're in, say, South Florida, where the water temperature is super hot right now, then that's that's a negative impact. Um, so yeah, everybody's getting affected by it. 
Um, and the thing is that, you know, a person might think that, oh, this is a great positive change of catching more uh, tarpon in North Carolina. Um, but there's also going to be some bad aspects, too, that they really don't want to deal with, like some of the coastal flooding they've already had, yep. more intense hurricanes, which they've already had. Um, sea level rise, which they've already had, right? There's some places in North Carolina the, along the Barrier Island that are getting swept away by the ocean. Yeah. Um, yeah, all those are are interconnected. And I mean, we we see it here in Charleston. I mean, there's sunny day flooding. I mean, there there's there's no rain, and it's it, the tides are big enough that downtown Charleston, the streets are are are, are flooding during a, a no rain event, just a big tide. Right. Um, and we're we're seeing that a lot more here. Um, and another thing, too, that I don't think that uh, a lot of people realize is like with all the development and everything going on, you talk about water quality. And it's like if you're having more rain and you're having, you know, more storms and you're developing areas where there's not a, a natural buffer to absorb some of that, the, the runoff is going straight right there into your estuaries. Where there's juvenile fish who are now living in substandard water quality, right? And that's going to have impacts later down the road if they survive at all. Yeah, that's that's what I was referencing, you know, when we first started talking is that you know, systems with healthy habitats and good water quality are going to be better able to, um, to some extent, you know, absorb some of the impacts of climate change. But when you take a watershed and you develop it so it becomes an impervious surface that increases runoff. Yeah. Um, which it comes with poor water quality. Um, often, especially in the summer, that water is heated from being over concrete or blacktop. Um, so yeah, you're you're basically adding, you're compounding uh, yeah. all those all those types of things. And with the um some of the maps I've seen of the planned development for the low country area. You know, in the watersheds above all the wetlands, uh, that systems that problem is only going to get worse. Um, so these are the kind of things that you know, BTT is constantly working on: is trying to first understand, but then when we understand, trying to influence uh, policy um, to keep these systems become from becoming more broken, um, so that they're actually you know functioning, right. even with things like climate change. And the one of the things that that I personally love about bonefish tarpon trials and why I support the work that that y'all do, which I think is so important, is and I th think it's maybe one of y'all's taglines or something, but you know it's bringing science to the fight, and I think that's so important that it's not just just a hey we think that this would be best. It's like well, and here's the data to back it up, <laughs> and this is what's happening, and it it, it it's really powerful. Uh, when when it's backed by science um and it's kind of becomes irrefutable and if you unless you just don't believe in in, in the data but the data is the data <laughs> yeah and, and and you know when we go into so very briefly our process is well it's it's, it's integrated for one right it involves anglers it involves other researchers and it involves resource managers and with those uh, different entities, those groups, we we figure out the status of knowledge for the species that we work on. Uh, we figure out the conservation threats and we figure out management needs or gaps. And we use that information to prioritize what research we're going to fund. Um, once we get the research data back, 
then that informs us of how it can be applied. Mm-hmm. Right? So we don't go into a thing saying, oh, we think this should happen. We're going to go get some, do some science to support that. We don't know what the answer is until we do the science. Right. But once we get the science, we get the data, um, then we work with those same three um, entities, those same three groups um, to formulate you know, proposals on how we're going to apply that information. Um, and so that's how we get things like um, you know, protected areas in the Bahamas for bonefish spawning locations and home ranges, or how we get that spawning season closure for Western dry rocks and the Keys, or how we provide support to efforts in North Carolina to make tarpon catch and release. All those types of things, right, are informed by the science. If we didn't have the science, you know, we can't really um, form an opinion or have a, a formal statement because we don't have the data to back it up. Um, So, yeah, we don't show up at the table, really, as far as policy goes until we have we're comfortable with the level of information that we've got. Mm -hmm. So when BTT comes up and and says things like, look, you know, coastal habitat development is going to significantly damage our fisheries. It's not based on just, you know, opinion. There's a lot of information on that. The fact that we've got information on tarpon migrations that the same fish or follow the same patterns. Um, you know, shows the connectivity and really underscores that we need regional management. It can't just be you know, state by state. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, that, that that seems especially now with with climate change and fish are some fish are changing migratory patterns. You know, I mean, we're 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 having less freezes in South Carolina, so there's more snook. You know, and, and there's but snook isn't regulated in South Carolina. You know, I, I mean. It, or if it is, I don't know about it, but the, it's not. It, yeah. And so uh, I was like, well, hang on. Uh, but my point is, is that, you know, with the, with a regional management for, from a fisheries management perspective and including climate in that discussion, it seems that's going to be more important than ever. Otherwise you're going to have a bunch of un- unregulated fish that are in different States because they're just, they're just following the difference in, in water temperature. Uh, right. I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, with snook, good example, um, it wasn't that long ago that their northern end of their range, as far as like a spawning population, uh, was Tampa. But now there's, you know, spawning population way up uh, in kind of the Big Bend area of, of Florida on the Gulf Coast. Wow. Um, you know, we get uh, juvenile tarpon have always, because of larval transport um, from spawning, People talk about juvenile tarpon and say the northern Gulf of Mexico or even South Carolina. Um, but now with with not getting those freezes during the winter, um, you know, they're starting to have tarpon survive the winters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now there's, you know, those are going to, going to become important juvenile tarpon habitat locations. Yep. Um, but, yeah, they're not being considered in, in any of that. And a bigger a, a bigger um, challenge within all of what we're talking about so far is um, fisheries, marine fisheries management is based on stock assessments, right? How many fish do you think they're in the water? What the age structure is? How many reproduce? How many can be harvested? Um, They do not consider in fisheries management uh, habitat water quality. Um, There, you know, every fisheries management agency has divisions that deal with fish biology and, and fish habitats, those types of things. But that information is not part of managing the fishery, right? It's all based on stock assessment. But what 
which is like a 120 year old model that worked for a while. But once we started to impact the habitats that support the fisheries, right. um, those right. those mathematical stock assessment models are no longer sufficient. And I think most people in in the fish management world would agree with that statement. Yeah. Um, some won't. <laughs> um, but um, that's another thing that we need to do is we need to change how we manage our fisheries to adjust to the challenges the modern world has put on us. Um, because you can you can manage to your heart's content, but if the fish lose sufficient amounts of habitat or have bad water quality that affects survival, you're not going to have a sustainable population. So yeah. I'll give you one example. Yeah. In the Indian River Lagoon, um, uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission recently made redfish catch and release only. And it wasn't because of overharvest. That wasn't a problem. And it was largely, a uh, large majority of anglers supported that decision. Um, there are fewer redfish because of habitat and water quality issues oh. are so severe that you know redfish population has been depressed for quite some time. Um, so, so that's the root cause of it. Is 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 yeah, the water it's quality? Yeah, water quality. Yeah, but the way fisheries are managed, the state their their only real response was to make a catch and release so that there was zero harvest, rather than, for example. Um, say, okay, you know, mandate that this type of uh, restoration for water quality has to happen, or this type of habitat restoration has to happen, because a different agency um, deals with those things, different agency in the fisheries management agency. Um, so yeah, there's a disconnect, and it's a system that's based on a, you know, a world that hasn't existed, quite frankly, for a very long time. Yeah. But kind of like with the threshold effect that I talked about earlier, you know, we're seeing the impacts now of what people did before us, you know, decades ago. Um, so the world that we're managing or saying we're managing has changed long ago, and we're still not up to speed on adjusting to that. And then you well, throw climate change on top of that. And like you said, you know, fish are shifting north um, and agencies just don't have. Fisheries management in general doesn't tend to be proactive i would say actually resource management in general is not generally not proactive it's reactive right um so that just makes it even more of a challenge and what what is um as anyone listening or as as an an angler who wants more um i don't know what the right word is but more robust fisheries management to consider things like water quality or climate change i mean how 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 do we change that? I mean, who, who, where do you go to say, hey, like, look, this is, we got to do something about this? Well, I mean, the fisheries management agencies uh, are the ones and other resource management agencies, like in Florida, the FWC and then DEP, Department of Environmental Protection. And then we have some water management districts as well. They all have to get involved. Um, and there's more of that type of action starting, but there needs to be a lot more integration. Um, so it's a system change, right? It's a paradigm shift. Um, and these are big entities that have been doing the same things the same way for for generations. Yeah. And so change is always hard. The problem is that the rate of change of the environment we're trying to manage has increased greatly. So we don't really have time for like incremental adjustments. We've got to figure something out. Yeah. That said, um, 
there's no place you can really go and see an integration of habitat, water quality, and fisheries stock assessment management. Just doesn't right? exist. So not, not to my knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that's how they managed a lot in the terrestrial world for for ages. So I think we can learn a lot from from those from that realm. Um, but there's also you know a lot of politics pushing against that. Um, so I think that by and large, the people in the management agencies um, understand everything we're talking about, and most of them would agree. Um, but I think they probably need some political cover to do a lot of it. And that political cover comes from anglers um, contacting their politicians and those same agencies to give them support, but basically um, saying, yeah, you guys need to do something and do it well and do it quickly. Right. Um, to provide that type of push that gives those um, management agencies the ability to actually do that change. Yep. Right. So it's it's a squeaky wheel. Um, yep. And I would, if, if it's... <laughs> If your audience is like, say, the typical fishing club that I go to, when people ask about, well, what can we do? And I say, you can call your politicians, write your politicians, um, have your fishing club write op-eds in the local newspapers, all that type of stuff. And I ask, how many people in the room have done any of those things? Right. And it's an extremely small number. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like we're our own worst enemy. Um, and it's not fun. It's not pleasant. Um Hell, it's not even rewarding because <laughs> um, right. there's no instant gratification. Yeah. Um, but this isn't a short game. You know, it's it's long-term investment type of thing. So that's how people can, I mean, it's people want to go out and, you know, maybe, you know, plant an oyster reef. And that's, you know, certainly helpful, but it's not going to fix anything. Yeah. Um, that the, what the real hard work is, is the the political realm. That's just the way it is. So everyone listening, um, we need to have some sort of coordinated effort to to be pushing for these things. So maybe we'll we'll have more of a follow up on that or maybe some sort of uh, template or a letter or something that you can fill in the blanks. I think maybe that could be helpful. Um, I'm going to write also, a letter now um, to opt Yeah, out. also letting, uh, you know, letting the, the, the companies in the fishing world know that this is important. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we talked about the response to things like um, addressing climate change at this year's ICAST were very different than the previous, right? Because people are starting to see the writing on the wall. Um, but those companies have a lot of influence in the political realm. Yeah. If they're if the people who are buying their gear tell them that this is so important that they'll go to another company to buy gear, um, that that is huge as well. Well, there's I think, a few companies that that already do that, but most don't. Yeah, and I think to to your point, we we're kind of talking about like action, right? What can I do as an angler? What can I do as a business? And that's obviously where I live in, um, helping businesses reduce their measure and reduce their carbon footprint. But that's something if if you're in the fishing industry, and I was pleasantly shocked <laughs> for the for the first time that I didn't get la laughed out of the booth when I was talking about hey what's your carbon footprint and and a lot of these companies were um not only open to it but were very receptive and they wanted more information which is is good but to your point I think it's um I think that the the anglers need to say hey what's your stance on these things and 
to your point, it, it, well, okay, well, I'll go somewhere. I'll give someone else my business, right? So supporting brands that align with your values. If you're in the fishing industry or any other business, now would be a good time to go ahead and start uh, reducing your carbon footprint as it's, it's going in the wrong direction. And then collectively using the individual and the business political power to change and affect policy and system change. So it's kind of this its own system, right? The the angler supports the the businesses that align with their values. The businesses who do these right things and communicate it well will gain new customers, and then they can collectively go and and make political change because they have the um, the I don't know what the right word is, but the clout to to do it. Um, right, right. And I mean, to me, I think that's the that's sort of the winning strategy or at least the only one that exists today that, that could work, you know? Um, so that gives me a little bit of hope, right? We, we, this is to your point, look in the mirror, right. And what, what have you done? You know, and I'm asking myself that, like, what, what, what have I done lately? And I could certainly be writing more op-eds and, and, and doing my, my share of the, of the work to affect change. But I'm curious with all of the, it just seems like things are moving in the wrong direction in a lot of ways, but is there anything that gives you hope as an angler or scientist or what is there, is there a message we could leave with, with folks out there on a, on a, on a positive note? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm still here. I'm yeah. still working on that stuff. <laughs> right. Um, right. Well, I mean, I have to be an optimist. I'm a fly fisherman. <laughs> I, I tie a bunch of feathers on a hook, go out in the ocean, which is l- the large portion of the of the Earth's surface, and expect uh, fish I want to catch to come within a hundred feet of the boat, and then expect me to be able to reach that fish on a cast and throw a bunch of crap on a hook, as my friend says, um, and actually have the fish think it's something to eat and eat it. And then, you know, through all the fight, land the fish. Right, so right. I've got to right. be an optimist. Yeah. Right? I've been I've been working on this for over 30 years. And I'm still here. Um, yeah, there are days that are tough for sure. Um, but, I mean, the good thing is we, it's not like we don't know. Mm-hmm. It's not, not like we don't have the information to let us know. We have the information on how to fix it. Yeah. And we have all those things, right? So it's not like, you show up at their doctor with some unknown disease that nobody knows what it is and it can't be cured. Mm-hmm. Um, we have all that. We know the disease, we know the cure. Um, and so we've got, I mean, in my mind, that's a lot of power. Um, it's just um, getting people to apply that power, mm-hmm. realizing that they have the power. Um, and, you know, on top of that, I, I don't have any kids, but people, a lot of people do. Um, yeah. And yeah. at this point, this isn't, for for me for my timeline this is for the generations that come after us right and so i think there's there should be uh, a huge sense of responsibility in that light um yeah and i think those are all positive things because you know we we have the answer it's just how are we going to actually apply it or if we're going to apply it yeah um, and as as anglers to an extent we're the canary in the coal mine with some of this, again, you know, some of it's it's so obvious now everybody sees it. But as anglers, we see what's coming before most people do. Yep. 
Um, and we can do a better job of communicating that for sure with other anglers, but also with people who don't fish. Um, just becoming more active. Yeah. Well, I think that's awesome. And uh, Aaron, I, I really, I can't thank you enough for your time and, and sharing your, your knowledge with us today. Where can folks go if they want to support, uh, which I would highly encourage anyone listening to this podcast um, to do, uh, where, where can people go and make a donation or uh, support Bonefish and Tarpon Trust? Well, they go to our website, bonefishtarpontrust.org. Um, for sure. They can see about a lot of the research that we've been doing. They follow our social media feed on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, they'll see uh, some reports on research or other types of things that we've talked about today. Um, I'm also involved with uh, American Fly Fish and Trade Association yep. on um, their work on climate and habitat. Um, so they can go to the AFTA website um, and dig into that a bit as well. Um, and there's some ways that they can get some talking points for reaching out to you know, the companies in our fishing industry to make sure that they're doing as much as they can as well. Um, so that's a good, those are two good starts um, you know, for on the fishing side. Um, yeah, and then just you know, keep digging uh, to get information um, and just, yeah, keep pushing. Well, I think I'm gonna. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this when we when we wrap. But I'll, I'll. I think we need to put like some sort of template letter for folks to start getting engaged. So we'll talk more about that. But um, but anyway, uh, Aaron, thanks again for your time. Always great to talk with you. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll wrap there. Thanks again for listening to the Sustainable Angler and special thanks to Dr. Aaron Adams uh, for sharing his knowledge with us today on the show. Um, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and uh, you can find previous episodes uh, at www.thesustainableangler.com. Thanks.